The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. I want to say a special thank you to Pastor Matt and to Pastor Tyler. I'm really grateful for you two. Uh, these two guys are, are just faithful in bringing the Word of God week in and week out, and, uh, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to do the same this morning. So uh, I, I grew up in a United Methodist Church in San Diego, California, and it was a, a, a big old-style church building with an outside courtyard where I remember eating donuts and running around with my friends through crowds of people following worship services. <clears throat> I remember on certain Sundays, in addition to eating donuts, I would up my carb intake by consuming the leftover communion bread. I remember the towering stained glass windows that flanked the congregation on either side of the wooden pews. I remember towering arches that went up into the ceiling, pointing to something beyond themselves. I remember uh, singing hymns with a huge and incredibly loud pipe organ. I remember choir members leading worship in their robes. I don't recall much about any sermon that I ever encountered as a child, though I'm sure they were good biblical sermons. I do remember during the sermon crawling under the pews from row to row to see how close I could get to the front without getting in trouble. I remember singing the doxology every week, and I remember the Lord's Prayer. Of the Lord's Prayer, Richard Foster says this. He says, it is really the total prayer. Its concerns embrace the whole world from the coming of the kingdom to daily bread, large things and small things, spiritual things and material things, inward things and outward things. Nothing is beyond the purview of this Prayer, And he continues, it is lifted up to God in every conceivable setting. It rises from the altars of the great cathedrals and from obscure shanties and unknown places. It is spoken by both children and kings. It is prayed at weddings and deathbeds alike, the rich and the poor, the intelligent and the illiterate, the simple and the wise all speak forth this prayer. It was one of the earliest things I memorized in the church. I didn't exactly know how to talk to God. That seemed like too big of a concept. But I did know how to recite these words that Jesus gave. And isn't it true that prayer can feel like that? Too big, overwhelming, we're not sure what to do or what is even going on. It can feel more like giving a speech, a speech that we're pretty sure we're being judged on, either by ourselves or other people or worse yet, by God. Have you ever asked or wondered what is prayer? What is happening in prayer? And how on earth do we do it? N.T. Wright says, at its lowest, prayer is shouting into a void on the off chance there may be someone out there listening. And at its highest, prayer merges into love as the presence of God becomes so real that we pass beyond words and into a sense of his reality, generosity, delight, and grace. For most Christians, most of the time, it takes place somewhere in between those two extremes. And to be frank, he says, 
For many people, it is not just a misery, a mystery, but a puzzle. Does prayer feel like a puzzle to you? Well, to a puzzled people, Jesus gives us simple yet powerful words and a simple framework in Matthew 6. And I want to read those words for us now, starting in verse 5. It says, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? God, would you teach us something simple about our hearts today? about our motives, and would you teach us something powerful about yourself? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So today we're, uh, we're talking about prayer from Matthew 6, and though I read verses 5 through 13, we're really not going to get very deep into the Lord's Prayer. In fact, we're, we're only going to get into the first few words of the Lord's Prayer today, mostly focusing on verses 5 through the first part of verse Nine. So uh, beginning in verse 5, we're going to learn from Jesus how not to pray. And he says this in verse 5. Take a look. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Now, we all are familiar with the word hypocrite. We, we kind of have a sense for what that means, right? It's a hypocrite is an actor. It's a, a pretender, one playing a role and an insincere one at that. And this is Jesus's favorite term for the Pharisees. The Pharisees, of course, are the religious elite of Jesus's day. Um, if you were to read Matthew 23, either later today or later this week, you'll find that Jesus's indictment against the Pharisees is that they have focused on religious behavior while ignoring the condition of their hearts. They preach, but they do not practice. They do all of their deeds to be seen by others. They love the place of honor and they love to be called rabbi. They have focused on religious activity in the temple, but have neglected justice and mercy and faithfulness in practice. Jesus gives us a metaphor in saying that they have cleaned the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Or as if that weren't clear enough, Jesus says, woe to you, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So, Jesus continues, you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
So we have here outward appearance, receiving the place of honor, being seen, all bereft of a heart that draws near to God and a heart that is being shaped by God. Jesus quotes uh, Isaiah 29 in the Gospel of Mark saying, These people have come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And this is what Jesus refers to as hypocrisy. So the actions that we see in verse 5 are as follows, right? They're standing in the synagogues or on the street corners, and they're using God language. And we would think this is exactly what God wants, right? Going to church and praying in public. If we, if we stop there, these people sound like faithful, mission-oriented people. But in true Sermon on the Mount form, Jesus is looking beyond the activity itself and into the heart, right? He sees their motives. What does it say that their motives are for this seemingly good action? In order to be seen by others. The prayer isn't directed to God. We, we call this manipulation. The prayer is using God language and God's name, but it isn't used with the motive of talking to God. It's used to point to themselves, to be seen and admired by others. And this is what they get. They get exactly what they set out for. They achieve their goal. They get their reward in full. This is not prayer. This is a show. Swiss theologian Karl Barth says, prayer is not prayer if it is addressed to anyone else but God. And to illustrate this more fully, Jesus gives us a parable in Luke 18. Just listen to this, starting in verse 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. Now the Pharisee, standing off by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of my income, and you can almost hear him go on and on and on. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Here we see prayer being used as a weapon, right? To prop oneself up at the expense and, uh, and against another person. Gene Davenport, in his book titled Into the Darkness, says, The warning with regard to prayer is this. If the disciples' goal is to have others see them and admire them for their skill with words, they will achieve that goal. They will be acclaimed as very spiritual people. Their religion will be respected. If that is what you want, Jesus says, then that is what you will get. As Jesus gives us a vision for prayer this morning, his first discouragement is this. Don't pray for show. Jesus, it would seem, is much more concerned with the posture of our hearts and the motives that drive us. And as a quick note, this does not say don't, pra don't practice prayer in public places or in groups or in the congregation. It simply points to what motivates our actions. 
Jesus continues on in verse six, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your father who is in secret. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. The disciple of Jesus is to pursue prayer away from the watchful eye of the crowd. The word here for room refers to an inner room or sometimes, and in some uses, it's a supply room. The idea is to get alone with God, close the door. We see this in the life of Jesus, don't we? He was always stealing away from the busyness of ministry, up early, off by himself, talking with the Father. And we go from verse 5, seeing the hypocrite motivated by a desire to be seen and honored, using God's things to draw attention to themselves, to verse 6, wanting to go unnoticed and uninterrupted. It's very significant to note, says Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, that the secret place is where God is. The motive for prayer in verse 6 is implied and set up against the reward in verse 5. In verse 5, the hypocrite's motive is to be seen by other people, resulting in being honored or seen as a religious pro. This, of course, is pharisaical righteousness, which doesn't gain access to the kingdom. Dallas Willard says of this, the ego swells and the soul shrivels. But in verse 6, in the secret place, in the quiet, behind closed doors, to be seen by no one but the Father, the disciple is both seen and rewarded by the Father. I get a little glimpse into this each morning, not because I get up and have a quiet time by myself, actually because I get to see my wife get up every morning and have a quiet time by herself. She's the first one up, she gets to the dining room table, lights a candle with the Bible open. She's alone with the scriptures and with God, seeking him in prayer. And it's a wonderful example in my life. I had another glimpse of this this week as I was in uh, the empty Story City offices uh, writing my sermon. And uh, many of you know that there is a Korean church that uh, historically has rented from us in that building. Well, a woman showed up and um, she just said, hey, I'm just here to do some work for my church. Um, And I said, of course, that's totally fine. I went back to my office and was typing away. And moments went by and I began to hear her in the other room crying out to God in prayer. It was a wonderful thing to to see that her, her, her thought about the work of the church began with prayer. As a side note, when I think about it, there have been many women in my life that have taught me and modeled something of a heart for prayer. There's my wife, Hannah. Uh, I think about my mom. I think about my friend, Catrice, who is one of our worship leaders at Story City. I think about my friend, Amanda, who is one of our community group leaders at Story City. All have modeled prayer to me. Jesus encourages us, don't pray for show. Instead, pray where only God can see you because God meets us in the secret places. He continues on in verse seven, take a look. When you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Frederick Bruner um, has a wonderful commentary on the book of Matthew 
And he says this, some pagan conviction taught that the gods are reluctant to hear prayers unless the prayers are long, and that only when the petitioner has proven oneself sincere by spending time in confession, praise, or even quiet, do the divinities begin to listen. You have to prove your sincerity first. In verse 5, The hypocrite used language and a false sense of religious superiority to draw the attention of other people to himself. Here in verse 7, the pagans are again using language, but not just language, but lots of language to gain a hearing with God. Where the NIV translates the phrase, do not keep on babbling, both the NRSV and the ESV say, do not heap up empty phrases. So the picture here is not just about quantity of language, but about quality of language as well. And their motive for doing this is clear in the text. They think they will be heard because of this. Now, there are two problems with this theology of prayer, and the first being to think that we must and or can earn a hearing with a perfect and holy God is foolishness, and it's antithetical to what is held out in the gospel. And secondly, it is equally foolish to believe that we, finite as we are, can somehow manipulate the infinite, all-knowing God who created all things using mere language. We cannot and we should not try to manipulate God, and we cannot prove ourselves to him either. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. The English writer and preacher John Bunyan says, in prayer, it is better to have a heart without words than to have words without a heart. We don't have to work ourselves into God's presence. Jesus continues in verse 8, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. The Father, the Father is the one spoken of in Psalm 139 and saying, Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Madame Jean Guyon says, rest, rest, rest in God's love. The only work you are required now to do is to give your most intense attention to his still, small voice within. Before you ask, God sees, God knows. It is not how much we pray that gets us a hearing with God. So, quick review. What have we learned about human motives so far? What have we learned about the pretending heart and how it's used in prayer? Well, one, we can use prayer to prop ourselves up in the presence of other people. We can use it to seek our own self-aggrandizement. We can use prayer as a weapon to shame other people, to hold them beneath ourselves. And we can use language to manipulate God into listening, maybe even to get what we want, which 
ultimately betrays a misunderstanding of who God is and how he longs to be in relationship with us. So if these are the things that Jesus is warning us about and discouraging us against, what then is the target? What is he encouraging us towards? Well, we find out in Matthew 6, starting in verse 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. It begins with the address, and the address establishes orientation. Uh, When I first met Hannah and we began dating, we had dated for a few months before she picked up and moved to London to do a study abroad. Uh, Communication was really weird and difficult uh, being, uh, you know, continents apart. Reaching each other by phone was sometimes difficult. There was, there was emailing, of course. But we really wrote a lot of letters to one another. Never before have I written so many letters. And in communicating by mail, getting the address correct is of supreme importance. An address establishes orientation. It tells the letter carrier where to take the letter. With prayer, it's not a letter but our hearts and minds that need orienting. Dallas Willard says, we dare not slight or overlook the address. It is one of the things that distinguishes prayer from worrying out loud or silently, which many, unfortunately, have confused with prayer. When we calibrate our orientation in prayer, in a sense, we are using our words to draw our attention to our Father, to who He is, to what He has done, and to all that He continues to do. So, first point of orientation begins with the first word. It's one of the easiest words to overlook in this address, and in the prayer as a whole, it's the word our. I know because in all the years I've prayed it, I'm not sure I've really paid that much attention to it. But the yous in verses 5 through 8 are emphasized, right? And they're singular. But here we see Jesus shift from you to our. We can easily gloss over this, but let's not. Why the shift from you to our? Well, I truthfully don't know. (laughs) Other than to say that for me, it articulates very poignantly what Jesus does for us. Uh, Turn to Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. It says this, Remember that at one time you Gentiles, and quick note, if you're not a Jew, then you are a Gentile. There's two people groups there. Remember at what time you Gentiles were at one time without Christ, being aliens from Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Not great to be a Gentile at that moment. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Pastor Matt read this passage last week. For he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. Continuing in verse 17. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who are far off, the Gentiles, and peace to those who are near the Jews. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God. Do you see here the gospel creates community? It takes individual yous and it forms them into an hour. 
It takes formerly warring tribes and people groups and forms them into a family, the household of God. The Father, in and through Jesus, is bringing unity to all things in heaven and on earth. One of the first truths we encounter in this prayer is that God wants us to pray, not from the vantage point of singularity or individualism, but from the vantage point of community, the vantage point of family. If we're praying, our Father, then guess what? You're my sister. You're my brother. You may even be my weird uncle. But because of Jesus' death and resurrection, because he is ushering in the kingdom of God, he has made us family. In my prayer life, if I only ever use I, me, or mine pronouns, then it might be an indicator that I don't properly understand my identity as being part of the larger family of God. Note that there is no use of the words I or me or mine in the Lord's prayer. Instead, it is full of us and our language. And so right from the beginning, we must realize that we are not alone in the life of faith, and we are not alone, therefore, in the life of prayer. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas says, though we pray in secret, we always pray with others. Even locked away in the inner room, behind closed doors, in the secret place, we are, under, we are to understand that we are part of something larger than ourselves, and so our prayers are not to be for ourselves alone. This simple word, our, brings breadth and width, belonging and community to our prayer. The first point of orientation that Jesus gives us, we pray firmly rooted in the family and community of God. Moving on to the second word, we find our second point of orientation, which is Father, our Father. Again, Jean Davenport explains the Aramaic word Abba, which is carried over into the Greek of the New Testament and simply spelled with Greek letters, is the characteristic word that Jesus himself uses in the Gospels in addressing or referring to God. Usually he refers to God as my father, indicating the intimacy that he knows to exist between himself and God. Jesus invites his disciples to share that intimacy by inviting them to pray our father. This is how Jesus addressed God, right? Intimately as father, closer to our word daddy or papa. Abba is not just a band, it's a word of love and affection. Here in the first two words of Jesus' prayer, we can already find grace being proclaimed. In instructing his disciples to pray, our Father, Jesus is passing on something of his own priceless relationship to God. Galatians 4.4 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. Because you are children, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. Some of our good friends here at Story City Church are Josh and Megan Wright. Maybe you know them. Uh, Josh is one of the elders at the church. Megan is one of the leaders of the Illum ministry, uh, women's ministry. They're wonderful people with a wonderfully large family. 
And maybe you also know their little son, Davy, cute little Davy. He's wonderful. Well, Davy started out with the rights as a foster child. And uh, after months and months, the, the rights moved to adopt Davy into their family. And when it came time to finalize the adoption in court, they invited Hannah, uh, my wife Hannah and I, to come and participate. We were so privileged to witness the moment when the judge conferred equal rights onto little Davy, equal rights with all the rest of the natural born right children. Even before Davy was officially adopted, he would refer to Josh and Megan as his mom and his dad. But in that courtroom, Davy's sonship became a reality. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, and at the moment of our belief, our adoption into the family of God becomes official. But even before Jesus gives himself to the cross, we can hear him speaking words that elude to the Father's vision for family. Jesus invites us to pray, our Father. And when I pray to God as Father, I hear the words of Matthew 7, 9, you parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? God is a good father. To call God father is to recognize that he created and sustains all things. But, but more than that, it is a relational word of intimacy. The father sees, he knows, he cares. He is good beyond our ability to comprehend. Now to call God father can be difficult for some of us because our fathers were broken and sinful. All of us are. But for some, the way that you were shown love or not shown love, the way that you were disciplined or not disciplined, has resulted in a distorted image of what a father is. My hope, though, is that we would allow the one who bears the name father so perfectly to heal our broken image of fatherhood that knowing him more and more would heal and calibrate our hearts and minds. Again, Frederick Bruner in his extremely pastoral commentary on the book of Matthew says this, for those who have lamentably experienced their fathers as unspeakable horrors, it can be argued that the remedy for a bad father is not the still greater removal of any father figure at all. It is the gift of a finally good father. Jesus gives us that in inviting us to pray our Father. We pray as a point of orientation from a place of intimacy with our good Father. John Tyson is one of my, my favorite modern-day pastor teachers. He's originally from Australia, but currently is pastoring a church in New York City called Church of the City, New York. He tells of a time while he was still living in Australia, working as a butcher where he knew that his season in Australia was coming to an end and that he would soon be moving to America. He had even marked the date on a calendar. And every morning he would get up, 
having such a hard time in the butcher shop and in order to give himself a sense of purpose to get through the drama, to deal with the temptation, he would flip through the pages of the calendar to that day and he would say, America, I'm coming. He says that reference point modified everything I did. It changed how I spent my money. It changed the relationships I was willing to enter into. It changed my attitude about suffering in the moment. That moment redirected all of my behavior in that season. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. For the follower of Jesus, our, our reference point is our Father in heaven. This is the page of the calendar that we open up to each day as a reference point. This is the realm that we turn to to shape our perspective and reality. In heaven is where God our Father is. But it's not just speaking of a place or a location. When I think of this word as a place or a location, it can feel very far away, like as in a galaxy far, far away. And this is partly true. Listen to 1 Kings 8.27. Even heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. Jeremiah 23.23-24 says, Am I a God nearby, says the Lord, and not a God far off? Who can hide in the secret places so that I cannot see them, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? Bruner says the expression in the heavens lifts and stretches the idea of father. God is not only intimately our father, he is also immensely the God of the whole cosmos. He is not only loving God, he is also almighty God. God our father fills the universe. He fills the furthest reaches of space. He cannot be contained by the highest heaven. And this I fear is the picture that comes to mind for most of us when we consider the word heaven. It's far out. But God is also a God that is near. And this is how Jesus spoke about his Father in the heavens. Heaven is God's realm, and Jesus spoke of it as being close by. It's at hand. It's among you. It has come near. The Greek word translated heaven is actually plural. Willard says, the meaning of the plural heaven sees God present as far out as imaginable, but also right down to the atmosphere around our heads. Heaven is a realm more than a location. In life and in prayer, if all I can see are the problems of my life, if my vision is shaped by the problems of this world, could be discouragement with your job, or feeling hopeless about your marriage, difficulties with the kids, hardships in relationships, the division of politics, a global pandemic, racism, murder, injustice. If that is all that we can see, well, it's more than just our eyes, right? Doesn't it affect our mindset? Doesn't it affect the condition of our hearts? Doesn't it just drain our tanks of faith and hope and love? Don't we feel this on more than an emotional level? Doesn't it leak out into how we feel physically as well? 
You see, what we fix our eyes on begins to configure the reality from which we live. But Colossians 3 tells us, set your hearts on things above. To set our minds on things above, we orient ourselves to the Father in heaven because it is actually what configures reality. We orient our minds, we orient our hearts so that we can then begin to view our world through the lens of God's coming rule and reign. It's like that great old hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Remember, the first part of this prayer is establishing orientation. To whom and to what reality are we turning to? Our Father in the heavens. If we begin and end prayer viewing everything through the lens of our problems, if, if all that we can see is the human perspective and possibilities or lack thereof, I promise we will come away powerless, feeling alone and discouraged. But if we can orient our vision, if we can saturate everything that we see, every problem that we face, every discouragement that we encounter, if we can saturate all of it in the reality of God's realm, the Father's goodness, the redemption of the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit, rooted in His coming kingdom and surrounded by the family of God, we will begin to see things with a renewed mind and with renewed vision, with faith and hope and love. We go to the secret place because that's where our Father in heaven is. This is where reality is. This is the reality that we want to live from and bring about. Not the old darkness. No, we were called out of darkness and into his glorious light. Jonathan Edwards famously said, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. This is the realm. And there's a realm, there's a room, there's a secret place that we have access to that can and will configure our reality. It can and will shape our vision. This is the address, our Father in heaven. When we come to God in prayer, we must take time to fix our hearts and our minds upon God and orient our world around Him. The third point of orientation that Jesus gives us in prayer, our perspective is shaped by God's reality. Well, we're, we're bringing it in for a landing here, I promise, but to further the point, notice the entire first half of the prayer is totally and completely about God. It's about who he is and where he is and what he is doing. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice this is not a prayer for the people of God to be snatched up from the darkness of the earth and delivered into the light of heaven. No, it's quite the opposite. As N.T. Wright says, the plea is for the glory and beauty of heaven to be turned into an earthly reality as well. First half of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gives us words and a framework. He gives us an address and petitions that usher our minds and our hearts into his reality. So, what does it all mean? How does this apply to us? And what is the invitation this morning? Well, one of the invitations today is to pay attention to our motives. In the text we covered today, we see the hypocrites, the pretenders, using spiritual language to impress other people. We see, we see some of them using God's language to prop themselves up over and against other people. 
We see others using empty words to gain a hearing with God. And there are two rewards spoken of, being seen by people and being seen by the Father. So here are a few questions that I'd like you to consider this morning. What are the motives that drive you to prayer? Do you feel pressure in prayer to use many words or fancy theological words to impress others? Do you feel like you need to speak a certain way before God will hear you? What reward are you seeking in prayer? Who do you want to be seen by? Whose affection, whose attention do you long for? This may not even be specific to prayer, but may extend outward to other ways that we use language and spirituality and social media. In the spirit of Psalm 139, we pray, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. A second invitation for each and every one of us We are being invited into the secret place with our Father who longs to be intimately connected to His children. He knows that all that we need is found in Him. What would it look like for you to create space this week to rest in the presence of the Father? What would it look like if you were to regularly regularly retreat to the secret place? What might happen in our hearts in our minds, what might happen to the way we view challenges of the day, what might happen in our families or our workplaces, what might happen in our cities. Do you think you could find five minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes? Start small this week and turn your attention to him. Lastly, I just want to encourage you, when you go to the secret place, Take time to follow the admonition of Colossians 3 and set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. You are not alone. You are enfolded in the family of God. And you have a loving and good Father. His realm is the reality from which we live. Will you pray with me? Lord God, God in heaven, we just acclaim you this morning as as good. We're grateful that you don't demand language from us, Lord, but, but just a heart that comes to you as a child comes to a father. Lord, would you pour out your presence right now upon people and families, friends and roommates gathered in living rooms, Pour your presence out upon us, oh God, that we might know your glory. God, give us a desire this week to follow after you, to seek after you, to seek first the things of the kingdom, God. God, the the biggest reward we could ever ask or, or, or request is just that we would be seen and known by you and that we would know and see you as well come and move in the hearts of your people. Transform hearts and minds as only you can. We give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.